This evening we'll begin our exploration on equanimity. As many of you know, uh, here in Taos we have what's considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many of the mountains that surround this valley. This sacred mountain is within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians on the edge of town here, of which this place actually borders on that, some of that land. And this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa Indians, the Tiwa people. And it's also in some way um, a sacred symbol for many of us who live here in Taos. I have the very good fortune to be able to look out on it and uh, take it in in every season, any time of the day or night, any day of the year. As from where I live, it's very clearly visible. This mountain, or any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning sometimes strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. And the mountain remains unshakable, unwavering, the mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, a lively energy, but only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached, it isn't averse to anything. We might say it lets life live through it, lets life live through itself closing off to nothing and holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. This is the quality of heart, of mind, of the one of the divine abidings, one of the immeasurables. Equanimity. So 
so that's what we'll be exploring. The Pali word is upeka. Equanimity is a very powerful force in our practice. It's a very powerful force in the whole of our life. In the teachings of the Buddha, it's included as one of the ten paramis, or ten perfections, the ten qualities of uh, an enlightened heart, an enlightened mind, and that we develop as we go along through our years of practice. And of course, it's one of the four Brahma-viharas, or four immeasurables. It's also one of the seven enlightenment factors. It's also the fourth of the states of concentration, one of the fourth of the four jhanas. So it, it's very uh, important in every, every facet of these teachings and practice, practices. Upeka was the final factor to come to maturity in the Buddha as he sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night with an evenness of balance in his relaxed and powerful presence as though he were an immovable mountain. As he sat there in what I sometimes think of as his amazing grace. Seeing things very clearly and relinquishing, letting go. Letting go in the mind, the heart. Relinquishing attachment to all formations of body, heart, and mind. Not clinging to anything. And breaking through to the great liberation the Great Awakening, breaking through to the complete end of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power, and the equilibrium of the heart, of the mind, to experience all kinds of change, every kind of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart, the balance of mind, to experience every sort of manifestation and change in the realms of internal and external experience. And in the realm of feeling. And in the Buddhist uh, definition of feeling, meaning the pleasant or the unpleasant feeling associated with the arising all the changes, and the passing of internal and external phenomena. And as I I think I mentioned the other day, the Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity. The equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or as I think I said, the Buddha's very graphic description, the cankers, have all been destroyed. Now, that can happen temporarily. And we experience six-limbed equanimity, maybe for a moment, maybe longer. 
Truly, it can. It can happen temporarily. And we have a moment of freedom. And of course, it can happen completely, finally. And then it's one who abides in the very natural state of purity in relationship to desirable and undesirable objects that come into focus at any one of our six sense doors. And this is a quote from the Buddha. Here, a yogi or a bhikkhu whose cankers are destroyed is neither glad nor sad on seeing a visible, visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, then he goes through all the sense doors, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She or he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness and the great strength and ease of the heart, the mind, to really remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of the word upekka, the Pali word upekka, is onlooking. So equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise. And on looking, it sees them, in a way we could say it sees them fairly, meaning without prejudice, without bias, without any favoritism, without partiality. So one attribute uh, of equanimity itself, as it's described in the realm of feeling, the pleasant, unpleasant, uh, is as neither painful nor pleasant feeling, neutral feeling. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between opposing the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets what is sometimes tremendous weightiness, the tremendous weightiness of greed, the tremendous weightiness of aversion. It's that balance in the middle, like the balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The heart, the mind, doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. As a child, uh, we had a seesaw in our backyard. And uh, I used to love to find that point of balance when I was on the teeter-totter, as we called it, or seesaw, with another person, where we would both just be in that place where the, nobody was down, nobody was up, just perfectly balanced at that point in the center. There was always a certain kind of uh, happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside when that would happen. 
maybe you remember for yourself. The poet uh, T.S. Eliot said this quite beautifully. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, that still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection. And at the same time, it's a great spaciousness, great spaciousness and strength of mind, strength of heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt in a cup of water. And because of the small container, the water, of course, will be very salty, really undrinkable, quite harsh. And on the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a large body of water the size of the Rio Grande River, the largest river here in New Mexico, it won't have the same effect because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great spaciousness that the salt, or great liquidness, (laughs) that the salt was put into. And as I think we could all attest to, life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of heart, of mind, with which we can meet and look on at all of life's experiences, all of the internal and external phenomena with balance, with equipoise, with the heart of greatness, as it's sometimes called, with what in the suttas, the teachings of the Buddha, in relation to equanimity as a factor of of enlightenment, is to look on with what's called a specific neutrality. So looking at Exploring a little bit, what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of mind, states of consciousness are present, including mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, all of the other three Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, that they're all met and seen, known, looked on at evenly through the heart, the mind of equanimity.
the function of equanimity, we could say, is to inhibit partiality. So upekka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen master Dogen uh, with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi called How to Cook Your Life where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, what in Zen is called the Tenzo, uh, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we can, of course, bring this teaching very immediately close. For instance, right here and now, to our um, amazing cook, our amazing Tenzo Jane is her name, here at Mabel's. And we can take it in our life back home. And this is uh, from Dogen. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in, turns allow the, this in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And he goes on. A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients. Nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. And he continues, In practicing the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same, not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk or the mouth of a yogi is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking without distinction, our mouths should be the same. <laughs> there should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? At what, what happens in the mind? What contributes to looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? When we practice here in retreat and in our life outside of a retreat setting, when at times the heart, the mind is calm, tranquil, serene, and it, this is known, when we recognize that the focusing power of the mind 
the concentration aspect of attention is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is when the mind isn't listless when it isn't agitated but is really interested in what's the object, what's going on and appropriately energized at those times we don't feel at all impelled we don't we aren't really at all interested in exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind any, in any way at all we're just really present simply recognizing and knowing what's going on and also recognizing and knowing that this is occurring that this is how the mind is how the attention is, how awareness is. That these factors, we could call them, of mind are in place, maybe for just a brief period of time or maybe a longer period of time. And just knowing this, just knowing this, is actually what contributes to the blossoming of our capacity to relate to all things with equanimity. The Buddha had a metaphor for this metaphor, a metaphor for this mind, when the mind is in this mode. Oh, I also want to just back up a little bit and mention that the Brahma Viharas, the immeasurables, uh, when there's metta in the mind, in the heart, when there's compassion in the mind and the heart, when there's joy in the mind and the heart, when that's known, that that's what's occurring, that this is the mode of the mind, that also it contributes to the manifestation and the stability, the development and the stability of equanimity. So the Buddha's metaphor for the mind when it's in this knowing mode and equanimity is there. His metaphor is, one is like a charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. Now that doesn't quite fit for our culture, so I came up with another metaphor. One is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly, that's set on cruise control. (laughs) And we're able to see then what is in front of us, where we're going, and what's passing by with a lot of ease. This factor of equanimity allows the process of practice the blossoming of insight to unfold without getting caught getting mired in the habits of mind that stop things up the various habits of clinging attachment identification that actually create a block a tangle 
in the flow of the process if we get caught in them. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of identification and the comparing mind, which we explored a little bit, can be seen, can be very subtle. But within equanimity, we can see those subtleties. We can know those subtleties and not cling, allowing the process to flow, allowing understanding to blossom, to deepen and to mature. And of course, as I think we all know, that until equanimity is really truly matured, we lose it, we regain it, we lose it and we gain, regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of a, a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity. And I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma Vihara, which we'll begin uh, doing tomorrow, exploring tomorrow. So silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over and over and over and over for two weeks, again and again. Directing it to myself, and then on through all the same categories that we're, we've been using for our metta practice. And this is the phrase that I used. I am the inalienable owner, heir of my karma, my deeds of thought, mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my action not upon my wishes. And we'll talk more about the practice uh, tomorrow in relation to this and some other phrases that can be used. By the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance, a sense of evenness, of neutrality in the heart and the mind. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, oh, there's, there's equanimity here. Seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought that came up was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. <laughs> if this was a Zen session, a good, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought dissolved, disappeared. But later that day, uh, I was startled in a kind of true Vipassana fashion. An equanimity test, Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my equanimity teachers though the note was actually from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And the note said, we would like you to give the Donna talk to the yogis tomorrow night. Well, <laughs> at that moment, 
equanimity completely flew out the window. And uh, my heart felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew in the window. And I said to myself, I can't. I can't do this now. I've been silent for weeks and weeks and deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and talk. It's impossible. And then, within moments, the heart, the mind relaxed and saw what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, yes, this is my equanimity test. (laughs) And of course I can do it. I want to do it. And then at that next moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into my heart. Gratitude for the teachers, for the retreat center, for the Buddha, for the teachings, for the practice, for the staff at the retreat center. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to do. So we lose our balance and come back, and we lose our balance and come back again and again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, dislike, resentment, and self-judgment that can manifest as guilt or disapproval, not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting, liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my, my experiences, who I am. Equanimity also manifests in quieting attachment and fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity has arisen and is growing, developing, in those moments fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of approval or disapproval, they begin to subside. Within the clear space of a true neutrality, there's nothing for greed, nothing for aversion to stick to when they arise. So they begin to subside. Equanimity fails when it produces what the Buddha called the equanimity of unknowing. And he had another term for it. He called it worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So sort of a complicated term. What does it mean? Worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. It occurs when we don't clearly see or see through the object of our attention with a focused attention, with mindfulness and investigation. And instead, we're kind of blindly seduced 
seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life. Seemingly equanimous with it all. This is not upekkha, this is not equanimity. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in ignorance. And this is some from the Buddha, words from the Buddha. On seeing a visible object with the eye, or in relation to contact through any of the six sense doors. Equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught ordinary woman or man, who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning the manifestations of actions, karma, who is unperceiving in danger, in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity, or so-called equanimity, doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was often very, very direct, very straightforward, very succinct in his teaching. Quite sharp sometimes, actually. So a little bit of a personal story. When I first began living here in Taos, a place where there's many, many beautiful things in many store windows, handmade, crafted, created, beautiful things. And at times when I would walk along and look at the windows, or even go inside sometimes, with uh, quite infatuated, uh, I would say, with what I want, or even sometimes the delusion of what I need. I didn't need any of it really, but you know, there's a deluded thing that comes up. I want, I need, I must have. Very painful contraction actually. So I made a practice out of it when I quickly saw how painful it was. I made a practice and would go along the street and look in the windows and watch what happened. Watch very closely, very mindfully what went on inside my mind. Watching the process very carefully and clearly. And slowly, slowly, it all, the, the contraction began to fall apart, dissipate. And I was able to walk along, look in the windows, appreciate the beauty, the craftsmanship, the creativity, and not want or need. And it was a huge relief, huge relief. There's a story that the Dalai Lama tells about himself. Um, he was, I, I, I don't know what city, but in some big city, and um, somebody took him to an area of the city where there were these little shops that had all kinds of, uh, sold all kinds of tiny mechanical parts. And uh, the Dalai Lama 
is a particular interest of his, um, kind of a fascination. He likes to even take apart watches and put them back together again. And he said that when he was taken to this section of town, which was the person was doing him a favor, because he likes all these little gadgets and little mechanical parts, he said he had this strong inner feeling of, at one point of wanting all of them. And then, and then realizing that he didn't even know what they were for. <laughs> and of course, we all know from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or fear or resentment, it isn't possible to look on at those moments with a true equanimity. I guess I could put anger in there, too. (laughs) And we probably each also know that the pretense of equanimity within ourself in the midst of greed or resentment or anger or fear or disappointment, a kind of glossing over the ignorance or ignoring the states that are going on, pretending to ourselves the pretense of equanimity. Maybe this pretense of, oh, it doesn't really matter. Or, yeah, I'm okay with it. Or, I don't really care. We've all done that. That's not equanimity. That's pretense. It's pretending something to ourselves. It's actually what is called the near enemy of equanimity, indifference. It's not equanimity. Indifference masquerading as upekka. Equanimity is based on a very attentive, clear presence. It's not based on dullness and indifference. It's not a kind of casual passing mood. And it's not produced by exertion. It's the result, it's one of the fruits of our practice. The fruit of training the mind, training the heart. And the development and blossoming of all the factors of mind. All the Brahma-viharas, mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, the joy that's in a Brahma-vihara and also one of the factors of enlightenment and tranquility, concentration. True equanimity is actually able to meet all the vicissitudes of life, these kind of flip-flops of the mind that you've encountered maybe daily in this retreat, in your own mind, and that we encounter in our life. And we encounter in our life in our own mind, and coming to us from others. The vicissitudes of praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction, and disrepute or disrespect or disregard. True equanimity is actually able to meet all of these sometimes 
harsh feeling experiences. Harsh feeling tests, we could say. And it's able to regenerate its strength from within our own heart, from within our own heart and mind, from the sources, our resources within, from the growing development of all of the divine abidings, from the growing development of all of the paramis, the perfections, from the growing development of the various factors of enlightenment from the growing development of confidence, faith. All of that resource that we have within us that we've been, that's been growing and developing through our practice. That's how equanimity regenerates itself. Or from what it regenerates itself. There's an amazing practice that um, was and maybe still is sometimes done by the Hopi Indians. Um, I definitely don't recommend it. But we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and the manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that's the great strength of equanimity. This is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. <clears throat> there were all kinds of snakes. Rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes. About 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, and then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly toward an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up on his crossed legs, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their head to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That's the way snakes show who are good and kind men, with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, seduced by and caught up in states of greed, states of aversion, states of fear, and will possess the power of renewing itself only if it's deeply rooted in insight. So I'd like to talk about, there are two particular understandings, two particular insights that we'll explore. This evening I'll just uh, talk about one of them. 
really these insights are the root of equanimity as they develop, as they ripen. And the first of these insights is our growing clarity of understanding as to how the vicissitudes of life originate, how they come to be, we could say. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, the various experiences of suffering and ease, the happy experience that comes from a deep sense of well-being, are the result of our karma, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deeds right here and now in this lifetime and on back and back and back. This is karma. This is our karma. We could say that we're born. We spring out of the womb of karma. And even if we might not like it at times, we're the inalienable heirs of our karma. For instance, just as soon as we've performed any deed with words or actions, we've completely lost control over it. Once we've put it out, done it, said it. And yet, in some way it remains with us. In some way, it inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance, we could say. We could say that everything happens to us and the ease or dis-ease in our heart, our mind, and that's important, the ease or dis-ease in our heart and mind in relationship to all of the happenings in our life, occurrences in our life, is the outcome of our own mind and deeds, our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind. Everything happens. It's our relationship to it. It's our own mind. Our suffering and our happiness in this life, in any given moment, is due to our own mind, our motivations and our actions of speech and body. It's not due to our wishes for ourselves. We could wish till kingdom come. Wishing doesn't get us anywhere. And it's not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic, seemingly strange or foreign being or world. It's due to our own mind. As this understanding really begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so it's the first basis of equanimity. When, in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, 
we begin to see that we only meet ourselves. What is there to fear? And I think this is really a key. When in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that we really only meet ourself. Ourself, what is there to fear? The heart begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. That we're not trapped in the karmic wheel, kind of running around and around like a gerbil. We can change our mind. But of course, as we've all experienced, fear, uncertainty, insecurity arise. They arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through what we could call our good deeds. Good deeds of thought. From this perspective, it's good deeds of wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there really comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of the good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more and more and more wholesome deeds right now. Even in the midst of what might be some particular and maybe very difficult hardship in our life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the heart, is itself a very, very good deed. Really the best. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in throughout all aspects of our life. This very retreat, what you're doing, is the best good deed, your practice outside of retreat. One of the things that's been really important for me in understanding karma is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions of mind, of body, of outward action. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. Never. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. It, and it becomes a refuge. really becomes a refuge. And at some point, we really know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else can there, what else then can the future bring 
other than increase of good. As this becomes more and more a certainty in our heart, the mind becomes more tranquil, the mind becomes calmer, more serene. And we begin to gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and the balance of equanimity in relationship to all the various challenges and the difficulties in our life. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our way of life, our deeds become our friend rather than an adversary. Even if sometimes the results of deeds might bring us some sorrow or some pain, maybe through the way that others treat us, or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life, or in some maybe surprising or some unrecognizable way. And even if sometimes the results that occur aren't what we expected, not what we had in mind, results that maybe seem contrary to what we might think our motivation is, The workings of karma are quite complex and we can't always uh, know. We very often don't know all the complexities of outcomes which are continually coming out along the way. Many, uh, many years ago now I had a therapist who would um, sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me, uh, at very appropriate times, she would say, this isn't what I had in mind. (laughs) Which uh, would always kind of really stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look, to take a very close look at my expectations, my motivations. And most importantly, in that moment, to really simply be with what was occurring, with this open a heart and as clear a mind as was possible at that particular time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend. And it might sometimes feel like quite a a demanding teacher and quite maybe a stern friend. yet potentially a truthful and well-intended friend. We learn about ourself, which seems to be our most difficult subject. Along the way of our practice, with the development and blossoming of a relative equanimity, we find that we have the strength to endure when we need to and to see clearly when that's what's being called for. In befriending uh, suffering, by looking really directly and clearly at it, we have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over and over again but to begin to 
walked down a different street. The teachings of karma and the understanding of karma can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from karma, to free ourselves from actions that again and again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves from repeatedly being born or repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. As we more and more clearly see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain, that sap our strength and our healthy resistance, there's a kind of what the Buddha called disgust arises. He actually used that word as far as we know. And you may have felt it yourself. A kind of disgust arises, which is actually healthy. It's wholesome. <laughs> and our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. So this is the first insight. This, that's the basis of equanimity, the understanding of karma. And basically I'd like to uh, end this evening's talk here. And tomorrow we'll look at the uh, second insight that's the basis of karma and then how all of the Brahma-viharas support and um, help each other, work together. So let's just sit for a moment. I think I said that wrong. The basis of equanimity, the second insights is the basis of equanimity, not the basis of karma. <laughs>